Packing and cracking is a popular gerrymandering technique. And according to a district court last January, it's how the Republican-led state of Alabama redistricted their seven-seat congressional map following the 2020 census. Packing and cracking works just as the name describes. Using Alabama's map as an example, district lines were drawn so that white voters were cracked as evenly as possible across six voting districts, while the areas with the greatest concentration of black residents were packed into one voting district. In other words, about 27% of Alabama's population was packed into 14% of its congressional districts. The goal of this technique, packing and cracking, which has been used in the past by both political parties, is to end up with as many congressional districts as possible for the friendly party, which was six out of seven districts that voted for Republican candidates in this particular case. Several organizations challenged Alabama's map, arguing that the map limits the number of districts in which black voters are likely to vote for their chosen candidates in violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which bans racial discrimination in voting policy. The district court agreed and ordered Alabama back to the drawing board in January of 2022. The Supreme Court put the lower court's ruling on hold until the new term began last October, allowing Alabama to use their allegedly gerrymandered map through the primary election and into the midterm elections that determined the leadership of both congressional chambers of Congress last November. I'll be reading this opinion for the first time as I read it aloud to you, but after a brief scan and a look at some of today's news headlines, I can tell you that it looks like Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act remains intact. For now, anyway. And now, the highly anticipated opinion of the court in Allen v. Milligan, formerly known as Merrill v. Milligan. Chief Justice Roberts delivered the opinion of the court, except as to Part 3b1. Justices Sotomayor, Kagan, and Jackson joined that opinion in full, and Justice Kavanaugh joined except for Part 3b1. Justice Kavanaugh filed an opinion concurring in all but Part 3b1. Justice Thomas filed a dissenting opinion in which Justice Gorsuch joined in which Justice Barrett joined as to Parts 2 and 3, and in which Justice Alito joined as to Parts 2a and 2b. Justice Alito filed a dissenting opinion in which Justice Gorsuch joined. In January 2022, a three-judge district court sitting in Alabama preliminarily enjoined the state from using the districting plan it had recently adopted for the 2022 congressional elections, finding that the plan likely violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. This court stayed the district court's order pending further review. After conducting that review, we now affirm. Part 1. Section A. Shortly after the Civil War, Congress passed and the states ratified the 15th Amendment, providing that the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. 
In the century that followed, however, the amendment proved little more than a parchment promise. Jim Crow laws like literacy tests, poll taxes, and good morals requirements abounded, rendering the right to vote illusory for blacks. Congress stood up to little of it. The first century of congressional enforcement of the 15th Amendment can only be regarded as a failure. That changed in 1965. Spurred by the Civil Rights Movement, Congress enacted, and President Johnson signed into law, the Voting Rights Act. The act created stringent new remedies for voting discrimination, attempting to forever banish the blight of racial discrimination in voting. By 1981, in only 16 years' time, many considered the VRA the most successful civil rights statute in the history of the nation. These cases concern Section 2 of that act. In its original form, Section 2 closely tracked the language of the 15th Amendment and, as a result, had little independent force. Our leading case on Section 2 at the time was City of Mobile v. Bolden, which involved a claim by black voters that the city's at-large election system effectively excluded them from participating in the election of city commissioners. The commission had three seats. Black voters comprised one-third of the city's population, but no black preferred candidate had ever won election. The court ruled against the plaintiffs. The 15th Amendment, and thus Section 2, prohibit states from acting with a racially discriminatory motivation or an invidious purpose to discriminate. But it does not prohibit laws that are discriminatory only in effect. The Mobile plaintiffs could register and vote without hindrance. Their freedom to vote had not been denied or abridged by anyone. The fact that they happened to lose frequently was beside the point. Nothing the city had done purposefully excluded them from participating in the election process. Almost immediately after it was decided, Mobile produced an avalanche of criticism, both in the media and within the civil rights community. The New York Times wrote that the decision represented the biggest step backwards in civil rights to come from the Nixon court. And the Washington Post described Mobile as a major defeat for blacks and other minorities fighting electoral schemes that exclude them from office. By focusing on discriminatory intent and ignoring disparate effect, critics argued, the court had abrogated the standard used by the courts to determine whether racial discrimination existed. But Mobile had its defenders, too. In their view, abandoning the intent test in favor of an effects test would inevitably require a focus on proportionality. Wherever a minority group won fewer seats in the legislature than its share of the population, the charge could be made that the state law had a discriminatory effect. That, after all, was the type of claim brought in Mobile. But mandating racial proportionality in elections was regarded by many as intolerable. Doing so, wrote Senator Orrin Hatch in the Washington Star, would be strongly resented by the American public. The Wall Street Journal offered similar criticism. An effects test would generate more, not less, racial and ethnic polarization. 
This sharp debate arrived at Congress's doorstep in 1981. The question whether to broaden Section 2 or keep it as is, said Hatch, by then chairman of the Senate subcommittee before which Section 2 would be debated, involved one of the most substantial constitutional issues ever to come before this body. Proceedings in Congress mirrored the disagreement that had developed around the country. In April 1981, Congressman Peter R. Rodino, Jr., longtime chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, introduced a bill to amend the VRA, proposing that the words to deny or abridge in Section 2 be replaced with the phrase in a manner which results in a denial or abridgment. This was the effects test that Mobile's detractors sought. But those wary of proportionality were not far behind. Senator Hatch argued that the effects test was intelligible only to the extent that it approximated a standard of proportional representation by race. The Attorney General had the same concern. The effects test would be triggered whenever election results did not mirror the population mix of a particular community, he wrote, producing essentially a quota system for electoral politics. The impasse was not resolved until late April 1982 when Senator Bob Dole proposed a compromise. Section 2 would include the effects test that many desired, but also a robust disclaimer against proportionality. Seeking to navigate any tension between the two, the Dole Amendment borrowed language from a 14th Amendment case of ours, White v. Register, 1973, which many in Congress believed would allow courts to consider effects but avoid proportionality. The standard for liability in voting cases, White explained, was whether the political processes leading to nomination and election were not equally open to participation by the group in question in that its members had less opportunity than did other residents in the district to participate in the political processes and to elect legislators of their choice. The Dole Compromise won bipartisan support, and on June 18th, the Senate passed the 1982 amendments by an overwhelming margin, 85 to 8. Eleven days later, President Reagan signed the act into law, the amended Section 2 reads as follows. A. No voting qualification or prerequisite to voting or standard, practice, or procedure shall be imposed or applied by any state or political subdivision in a manner which results in a denial or abridgment of the right of any citizen of the United States to vote on account of race or color as provided in Section B. B. A violation of subsection A is established if, based on the totality of circumstances, it is shown that the political processes leading to nomination or election in the state or political subdivision are not equally open to participation by members of a class of citizens in that its members have less opportunity than other members of the electorate to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. The extent to which members of a protected class have been elected to office in the state or political subdivision is one circumstance which may be considered. 
provided that nothing in this section establishes a right to have members of a protected class elected in numbers equal to their proportion in the population. Section B. For the first 115 years following Reconstruction, the state of Alabama elected no black representatives to Congress. In 1992, several plaintiffs sued the state, alleging that it had been impermissibly diluting the votes of black Alabamians in violation of Section 2. See Wesh v. Hunt. The lawsuit produced a majority black district in Alabama for the first time in decades. And that fall, Birmingham lawyer Earl Hillard became the first black representative from Alabama since 1877. Alabama's congressional map has remained remarkably similar after Wesh. The map contains seven congressional districts, each with a single representative. District 1 encompasses the Gulf Coast region in the southwest. District 2, known as the Wiregrass region, occupies the southeast. District 3 covers the eastern-central part of the state. Districts 4 and 5 stretch widthwise across the north, with the latter layered atop the former. District 6 is right in the state's middle, and District 7 spans the central west. In 2020, the decennial census revealed that Alabama's population had grown by 5.1%. A group of plaintiffs led by Alabama legislator Bobby Singleton sued the state, arguing that the existing congressional map was malapportioned and racially gerrymandered in violation of the Equal Protection Clause. While litigation was proceeding, the Alabama Legislature's Committee on Reapportionment began creating a new districting map. Although the prior decade's population growth did not change the number of seats that Alabama would receive in the House, the growth had been unevenly distributed across the state, and the existing map was thus out of date. To solve the problem, the state turned to experienced mapmaker Randy Hinneman, who had created several districting maps that Alabama used over the past 30 years. The starting point for Hinneman was the then-existing 2011 Congressional Map, itself a product of the 2001 map that Hinneman had also created. Hinneman worked to adjust the 2011 map in accordance with the redistricting guidelines set by the legislature's reapportionment committee. Those guidelines prioritized population equality, contiguity, compactness, and avoiding dilution of minority voting strength. They also encouraged, as a secondary matter, avoiding incumbent pairings, respecting communities of interest, minimizing the number of counties in each district, and preserving cores of existing districts. The resulting map Hinneman drew largely resembled the 2011 map, again producing only one district in which black voters constituted a majority of the voting age population. The Alabama legislature enacted Hinneman's map under the name HB1. Governor Ivey signed HB1 into law on November 4, 2021. Section C. 
three groups of plaintiffs brought suit seeking to stop Alabama's Secretary of State from conducting congressional elections under HB 1. The first group was led by Dr. Marcus Castor, a resident of Washington County, who challenged HB 1 as invalid under Section 2. The second group, led by Montgomery County resident Evan Milligan, brought claims under Section 2 and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Finally, the Singleton plaintiffs, who had previously sued to enjoin Alabama's 2011 congressional map, amended their complaint to challenge HB 1 as an impermissible racial gerrymander under the Equal Protection Clause. A three-judge district court was convened, comprised of Circuit Judge Marcus and District Judges Manasco and Moorer. The Singleton and Milligan actions were consolidated before the three-judge court for purposes of preliminary injunction proceedings, while Castor proceeded before Judge Manasco on a parallel track. A preliminary injunction hearing began on January 4, 2022, and concluded on January 12. In that time, the three-judge district court received live testimony from 17 witnesses, reviewed more than 1,000 pages of briefing and upwards of 350 exhibits, and considered arguments from the 43 different lawyers who had appeared in the litigation. After reviewing that extensive record, the court concluded in a 227-page opinion that the question whether HB 1 likely violated Section 2 was not a close one. The court thus preliminarily enjoined Alabama from using HB 1 in forthcoming elections. Four days later, on January 28th, Alabama moved in this court for a stay of the district court's injunction. This court granted a stay and scheduled the cases for argument, noting probable jurisdiction in Milligan and granting certiorari before judgment in Castor. Part 2 The district court found that plaintiffs demonstrated a reasonable likelihood of success on their claim that HB 1 violates Section 2. We affirm that determination. Section A. For the past 40 years, we have evaluated claims brought under Section 2 using the three-part framework developed in our decision Thornburg v. Jingles, 1986. Jingles concerned a challenge to North Carolina's multi-member districting scheme which allegedly diluted the vote of its black citizens. The case presented the first opportunity since the 1982 amendments to address how the new Section 2 would operate. Jingles began by describing what Section 2 guards against. The essence of a Section 2 claim, the court explained, is that a certain electoral law, practice, or structure interacts with social and historical conditions to cause an inequality in the opportunities enjoyed by black and white voters. That occurs where an electoral structure operates to minimize or cancel out minority voters' ability to elect their preferred candidates. 
Such a risk is greatest where minority and majority voters consistently prefer different candidates and where minority voters are submerged in a majority voting population that regularly defeats their choices. To succeed in proving a Section 2 violation under Jingles, plaintiffs must satisfy three preconditions. First, the minority group must be sufficiently large and geographically compact to constitute a majority in a reasonably configured district. A district will be reasonably configured, our cases explain, if it comports with traditional districting criteria, such as being contiguous and reasonably compact. Second, the minority group must be able to show that it is politically cohesive. And third, the minority must be able to demonstrate that the white majority votes sufficiently as a block to enable it to defeat the minority's preferred candidate. Finally, a plaintiff who demonstrates the three preconditions must also show, under the totality of circumstances, that the political process is not equally open to minority voters. Each jingle's precondition serves a different purpose. The first, focused on geographical compactness and numerosity, is needed to establish the minority has the potential to elect a representative of its own choice in some single-member district. The second, concerning the political cohesiveness of the minority group, shows that a representative of its choice would in fact be elected. The third precondition, focused on racially polarized voting, establishes that the challenged districting thwarts a distinctive minority vote, at least plausibly on account of race. And finally, the totality of circumstances inquiry recognizes that application of the jingles factors is peculiarly dependent upon the facts of each case. Before courts can find a violation of Section 2, therefore, they must conduct an intensely local appraisal of the electoral mechanism at issue, as well as a searching practical evaluation of the past and present reality. Jingles has governed our Voting Rights Act jurisprudence since it was decided 37 years ago. Congress has never disturbed our understanding of Section 2 as Jingles construed it. And we have applied Jingles in one Section 2 case after another, to different kinds of electoral systems and to different jurisdictions in states all over the country. Section B As noted, the District Court concluded that plaintiff's Section 2 claim was likely to succeed under Jingles. Based on our review of the record, we agree. With respect to the first Jingles precondition, the District Court correctly found that black voters could constitute a majority in a second district that was reasonably configured. The plaintiffs adduced 11 illustrative maps, that is, example districting maps that Alabama could enact, each of which contained two majority black districts that comported with traditional districting criteria. With respect to compactness, for example, the district court explained that the maps submitted by one of plaintiff's experts 
Dr. Moon Duchin, performed generally better on average than did HB1. A map offered by another of plaintiffs' experts, Bill Cooper, produced districts roughly as compact as the existing plan. And none of plaintiffs' maps contained any tentacles, appendages, bizarre shapes, or any other obvious irregularities that would make it difficult to find them sufficiently compact. Plaintiffs' maps also satisfied other traditional districting criteria. They contained equal populations, were contiguous, and respected existing political subdivisions, such as counties, cities, and towns. Indeed, some of plaintiffs' proposed maps split the same number of county lines, or even fewer county lines, than the state's map. We agree with the district court, therefore, that plaintiffs' illustrative maps strongly suggested that black voters in Alabama could constitute a majority in a second reasonably configured district. The state nevertheless argues that plaintiffs' maps were not reasonably configured because they failed to keep together a traditional community of interest within Alabama. A community of interest, according to Alabama's districting guidelines, is an area with recognized similarities of interests, including but not limited to ethnic, racial, economic, tribal, social, geographic, or historical identities. Alabama argues that the Gulf Coast region in the southwest of the state is such a community of interest, and that plaintiffs' maps erred by separating it into two different districts. We do not find the state's argument persuasive. Only two witnesses testified that the Gulf Coast was a community of interest. The testimony provided by one of those witnesses was partial, selectively informed, and poorly supported. The other witnesses, meanwhile, justified keeping the Gulf Coast together simply to preserve political advantage. You start splitting counties, he testified, and that county loses its influence. That's why I don't want Mobile County to be split. The district court understandably found this testimony insufficient to sustain Alabama's overdrawn argument that there can be no legitimate reason to split the Gulf Coast region. Even if the Gulf Coast did constitute a community of interest, moreover, the district court found that plaintiffs' maps would still be reasonably configured because they joined together a different community of interest called the Black Belt. Named for its fertile soil, the Black Belt contains a high proportion of black voters who share a rural geography, concentrated poverty, unequal access to government services, lack of adequate health care, and a lineal connection to the many enslaved people brought there to work in the antebellum period. The district court concluded, correctly under our precedent, that it did not have to conduct a beauty contest between plaintiffs' maps and the states. There would be a split community of interest in both. The state also makes a related argument based on core retention, a term that refers to the proportion of districts that remain when a state transitions from one districting plan to another. 
here by largely mirroring Alabama's 2011 districting plan, HB1 performs well on the core retention metric. Plaintiffs' illustrative plans, by contrast, naturally fare worse because they change where the 2011 district lines were drawn. But this court has never held that a state's adherence to a previously used districting plan can defeat a Section 2 claim. If that were the rule, a state could immunize from challenge a new racially discriminatory redistricting plan simply by claiming that it resembled an old racially discriminatory plan. That is not the law. Section 2 does not permit a state to provide some voters less opportunity to participate in the political process just because the state has done it before. As to the second and third jingles preconditions, the district court determined that there was no serious dispute that black voters are politically cohesive, nor that the challenged district's white majority votes sufficiently as a block to usually defeat black voters' preferred candidate. The court noted that, on average, black voters supported their candidates of choice with 92.3% of the vote, while white voters supported black preferred candidates with 15.4% of the vote. Plaintiffs' experts described the evidence of racially polarized voting in Alabama as intense, very strong, and very clear. Even Alabama's expert conceded that the candidates preferred by white voters in the areas that he looked at regularly defeat the candidates preferred by black voters. Finally, the district court concluded that plaintiffs had carried their burden at the totality of circumstances stage. The court observed that elections in Alabama were racially polarized, that black Alabamians enjoyed virtually zero success in statewide elections, that political campaigns in Alabama had been characterized by overt or subtle racial appeals, and that Alabama's extensive history of repugnant racial and voting-related discrimination is undeniable and well-documented. We see no reason to disturb the district court's careful factual findings, which are subject to clear error review and have gone unchallenged by Alabama in any event nor is there a basis to upset the district court's legal conclusions. The court faithfully applied our precedents and correctly determined that under existing law, HB 1 violated Section 2. This opinion has been divided into two parts, and we've just come to the end of the first. Next episode, we will pick up right where this episode left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.